Ireland for boost number one. A kickstart for Australia. Gold and a world record. Now it's Donovan Bailey trying to pick up runners. Donovan Bailey is putting on a third. He's got it! 984, a world record for Donovan Bailey and a gold medal! A perfect score. 10.0 for Dante Cavanici. A perfect score. The first time I've never seen this one. In over 100 years, nobody's won as many medals at the Olympic Games in any sport than this great champion, Michael Phelps. Usain Bolt sprinting ahead, winning by daylight and setting a world record. 9.68, the wind is okay. How easy was that? Welcome once again to Off the Podium, an Olympics podcast, as we continue our vault interview series, I guess we're calling them, of former Olympians that appeared on uh, one of the, I guess, the parent shows of this pod, uh, podcast, uh, The Brink, my, my former radio show that I hosted for about 11 years uh, in, in Hobart, on Edge Radio in Hobart, and continues to this day as a podcast, uh, download via iTunes if you still wish to find it. But uh, throughout those, uh, those numerous years on air, I did get the pleasure of interviewing several Olympians, several people involved in the Olympics, and several people who just have a story related to the Olympics. One such person, Stephen Bradbury, the name synonymous with glory and and achievement in this country because, of course, he became Australia's very first ever Winter Olympic gold medalist, 2002 Salt Lake Olympics. And if I had to rank my top five, top ten sporting moments I've ever witnessed in my entire life, it's got to be in there. Uh, For those who don't know the story... You've been living under a rock, or well, you're not Australian, clearly. Uh, basically, Stephen made the final uh, in the short track speed skating in the 1,000 metres and pretty much just hung back. He was in his final Olympics, you know, kind of made it into the final through various circumstances, and pretty much everyone fell over in the final corner, uh, leading him to win his gold medal. And uh, if you think it's just that simple, it's a case of that's all that happened. I mean, there's a, there's a lot more inspiration to Stephen's story. Uh, I've had the pleasure of reading his autobiography and certainly is uh, a lot more to then simply being a lucky man when it comes to the gold medal that he won. Of course, he was, I should also mention, member of the the first ever Winter Olympic medal by an Australian, uh, by Australia in general, uh, winning back in Lillehammer, the short track relay. He was a member of that team as well. So he's also up there as uh, equal greatest uh, Olympic, uh, Winter Olympic athlete in terms of medals won. Uh, so uh, plenty to talk about and this was back from 2009 so this interview is eight years old now but really his story hasn't changed a lot you might just hear us talking a little bit about vancouver and you'll be thinking well hang on a minute that was a while ago but there you go and uh, as i mentioned in our jane savile chat there are of course uh, some strange questions at the end you'll be thinking what the hell is he asking about folding toilet paper it was a brink thing you'll you'll get used to these as we keep going along so i'm going to shut up and you're going to listen to stephen bradbury We're extremely honoured to have our next guest here on the brink. He was a member of the 5,000 metre short track speed skating relay team that claimed Australia's first ever Winter Olympic medal in 1994 and became the first ever Australian Winter Olympic gold medalist in 2002 after his iconic last man standing victory in the 1,000 metres. He's also been honoured with the Order of Australia for his contribution to short track speed skating as well as being named one of Australia's 100 greatest Olympians. Please welcome to the brink Stephen Bradbury. Stephen, thank you very much for your time today. Too easy, how you doing? Doing fantastic. Stephen, how about yourself? Yeah, it's uh, 
quite balmy in Queensland here today. <laughs> it's nice and uh, getting a bit warmer here in Hobart. I'm sure we're not as hot as you guys are up there at the moment. Definitely not. No, I think we're looking at about 35 today. <laughs> we'll be lucky to reach 30, but for us, that's a nice hot day. I'm sure you would be, though, being a, a speed skater, you'd be used to a bit of the cold weather, though, wouldn't you? Yeah, well, I've been retired for, well, eight years or so now. It's, uh, I did spend most of my life going from winter to winter, so the moment I retired, I've been enjoying summers, most definitely. Sounds good to me. Now, what originally made you want to get into the sport of short track speed skating? Uh, my dad used to do it. He was a national champ a couple of times in the uh, in the mid-60s here in Australia. That's kind of as far as the sport went back then, so he never got to uh, to really see where he sat internationally, but uh, he got me into it as a youngster and, yeah, I, I suppose had a bit of talent as a kid and uh, and was able to save off some of those things that a lot of athletes don't fulfil their dreams through, you know, alcohol girls, that sort of thing when you get to your early <laughs> teens. And, uh, yeah, was able to kind of make the World Championship team when I was 15 and, and see the sport globally and uh, took it from there. Was there a reason why you chose short track over long track? Was your dad into short track more so than the long track? Um, well, we don't actually have any long track rinks in Australia. Track is, uh, is a 400-metre ice rink, like an athletics oval, and you actually race against the clock rather than against other skaters, so the fastest time wins. Uh, short track is on a normal-sized rink where they would play ice hockey or where you'd go general skating. So one lap is 111 metres and you actually race in packs on the same track. So it's uh, four skaters in a race. If you finish first or second in your race, you move through to the next round of the competition until you get to the finals and you figure out the medals. So I considered going long track a couple of times in my career because I'll, my body shape was probably more suited to long track than short track being being one of the bigger guys on the ice in short track, but I would have had to move overseas to do long track and didn't want to do that. Do you think that, considering that you've mentioned that we don't have a long track uh, skating rink in Australia, do you think that's something that maybe in the future they'll consider, or do you think we're just focused on the short track? Oh, long track rink is a big call to build in Australia. They're, uh, they're massive, massive facilities. You know, you think the size of an athletics track, and you've got to build that out of ice, and you know, realistically put a roof over it. Uh, I don't think it's dollars and cents are going to stack up to build one of those in Australia. They do have a fantastic facility that's almost complete, um, a dual ice rink surface at Docklands in Melbourne, which is going to be the, the centre for Australian ice sports with the, the National Short Track Program will be shifting from Brisbane to Melbourne. It's uh, due to open in about uh, two months' time, so they're, they're hoping to get it open just before the Winter Olympics. Do you think that will then increase the chances of, say, Australia getting more success when it comes to the Winter Olympics? Um, well, it definitely will in short track. I mean, we have a good result in short track over the years, but uh, those rinks being built and uh, hopefully there'll be some, some funding for development of the sport. So we, we should you know, be able to target maybe an eight-year plan and, and hopefully have some new skaters coming into the sport that will compete for us at the Olympics in 2018. Was it a difficult sport to get established in, considering Australia isn't generally known for our winter sports? Yeah, well, it's certainly not mainstream, that's for sure, and it's, it's not going to be a sport that takes up a lot of television time in Australia <laughs> anytime soon. It, uh, you know, it, it, hits the, it hits pretty hard every time the Winter Olympics is on every four years, and it is an exciting sport. It's a sport that, you know, it's got, it's got the element of danger, it's fast, and it's, uh, you, know, you have to be strong, you have to be fit. And it, it combines all the elements of sport that a human being needs to get good at to succeed in. It's, uh, you know, it's not just about being really endurance-based fit. It's not just about being super strong like a weightlifter. You know, you've got to have a, a, uh, a supreme mix of everything. But probably, the, probably the, one of the key ingredients is, is lactic acid tolerance. 
being able to uh, cope with the, that pain build up in your muscles and not slow down. And uh, that's probably the key ingredient in, in short track. Lactic acid tolerance. That's a terminology I don't think I've ever heard before, Stephen. I'm, <laughs> I'm sure you could, you could, if you could promote that well enough, you could get more kids involved, promote the danger aspect you're saying, the excitingness, and then, you know, it could be primetime TV action, you know, in eight-year plan. Yeah, well, it's a, good, it's a good television sport. Unfortunately, the speed doesn't quite cross over. I mean, you do 55 kilometres an hour, which wow. is standing next to the barrier at the ice rink, and a guy goes past you doing 55 k's an hour, it just looks insanely fast. And and when you hit the barrier doing over 50 kilometres an hour and you stop, that's fairly exciting to watch as well. <laughs> no, I can but, see uh, why they have the barriers there. Yeah, well, they're padded. It's, uh, television doesn't quite do it justice. But, um, you know, even still, you know, as a TV sport, confined in such a small arena with the crowd being right on top of it, you know, the atmosphere at the Olympics just blows your mind it's incredible and that was always your goal to reach the olympics now, once i made the national team when i was 15 yeah i wanted to make the olympics and see if i could be the best in the world and you got that chance i suppose in 2002 of course with your gold medal now of course back in the early 90s australia did win the world championship uh, in 1991 did you feel disappointed being listed as a reserve for the 1992 olympics um, i was actually part of the team in 91 when we won the world championship and uh, had some very good form leading into the 1992 Winter Olympics, which was my first. But, uh, that was about a month or two before the Games, and I got a bit of a knee injury, and I started messing with my equipment. You know, you, your blades are actually bent, offset, angled. Everything is turned, is geared towards turning left. And it is an ask to get your equipment set up properly, and, and back then that ask wasn't re- as refined as well as what it is now, and I just couldn't find that feel. And... Uh, basically lost the plot in the lead up to the Winter Olympics and ended up sitting on the sidelines as the reserve, which was very disappointing, especially as we were the favourites to win the relay, being the uh, the reigning world champions. And uh, it was even more disappointing to see Richard Nozelski, who was arguably our strongest skater at the time, kick one of the blocks and fall down, and we didn't get a medal there, but... Uh, we were able to come back at the next Winter Olympics and, and get that bronze medal you spoke of in the lead-up, Australia's first Winter Olympic medal. And that must have been a fantastic feeling to know that you were part of history and you'll always go down as being part of that team that claimed Australia's first Winter Olympic medal. Yeah, it was pretty cool. Uh, <laughs> that was you know, that was our goal. We knew that we were one of the strongest three relay teams in the world and you know, in some ways a little disappointed that we only got the bronze. But um, being that we were able to take the monkey off the back, so to speak, I mean, there'd been a lot of contenders over the years in Australian winter sports that had possible chances to get medals. Danny Carr and, and Colin Coates in long track speed skating were probably two of the names that could have got it in the past but didn't. It's, uh, we were able to, to do that and uh, that was an incredible moment to, to share with your teammates and and the nation was, you know, was gripped by short track speed skating for five minutes in 1994. <laughs> better, better five minutes than none at all then, Stephen. Yeah, yeah. Give, give it eight years later, and I suppose we, we got a bit more gripped with that. Now, in the between when you won the medal uh, in 1994, and of course when you included with the gold medal in 2002, you suffered a couple of serious injuries in your career, including getting sliced in the leg and also breaking your neck. After those injuries, were there any doubts in your mind? Did you think, that's it, you're never going to be skating again? Um, when I got my leg cut open. That was an extremely serious injury. I have six litres of blood and I lost four of them on the ice in about 60 seconds. So it's funny, you know, you learn a lot about yourself when you're put in a life and death situation like that one and I learned a lot about myself then and, you know, kind of realised how much power that you really do have inside yourself when you're, when you're faced with the possibility that 
you might die. And and I was able to use that as a positive when I came back to the sport. I was only 21, so it never entered my head that I wouldn't skate again. It was it was only a matter of when I felt as though I had a lot of unfinished business. I got my leg back up at the same strength, but I unfortunately never got the power back in it, that explosive power that I had prior to getting my leg cut open. So that was something that I always had to contend with in the back of my mind. And, you know, from, from 94 onwards, not having that explosive power, how much was I down on what I could be? But um, I was able to put that out of my head. The other one was when I broke my neck, which was only 18 months before winning the gold medal, and that was a different story. I was in a halo brace, one of those things that gets screwed into your skull and you look like a human building soft. <laughs> I was wearing one of those for about a month and a half, and I had a lot of time to think, and it came down to, okay, I was arguably past my best at that stage. I'd raced for Australia at three Winter Olympic Games, and the bottom line was that I hadn't done my best at any of those Olympics. And that's the biggest stage in the world, you know, where you're supposed to produce everything and, and more that you know you got in yourself. And I knew that I hadn't done it. And really, that was all that mattered, you know. Chance to win. I was the favourite to win the 1,000 metres in, in 94, and I got knocked down in the first round. In 98, in Japan, I, I had good chance to win there too, but I got sick in the lead-up to the Olympics and I didn't skate well. You know, when I broke my neck a couple of years before Salt Lake, I decided that that was where I was, the, the big turning point in my career, whether I was going to keep going for that next 18 months or not, and I thought I decided that I don't really have an option here. You know, I've I've trained my guts out of this sport for 10 years, and I'm not satisfied because I haven't done my best at the Olympics. And all I wanted to do up to that point was win a gold medal. I didn't have one. Chances are I wasn't getting one, so I decided I've got to change my goals, and I reevaluated and said, okay, I'm going to skate. I'm going to do that last year and a half. I make it to Salt Lake City, and I'm going to skate. When I do, I don't care where I finish anymore. Probably not going to go get a gold medal. I'm probably not going to get any medals. But as long as I could get off the ice after one race and say to myself that I finally came to the Olympic Games and did my best, well then I decided it didn't really matter where I finished anymore and 18 months of hard work over the course of 12 wasn't that much anyway, so I was just <laughs> going to get off my ass and do it and see what happened after that. Of course, in the quarterfinals, you were originally eliminated, but before the defending world champion from Canada, uh, Mark Gagnon, I believe his name was, uh, he was disqualified and that moved you into the semis. When you were originally eliminated, did you think that's it, you know, I've got to concentrate on my other events, or did you sort of have slight hope that he might be getting disqualified with the events that were happening on the ice at the time? Um, yeah, I, I thought that and... <sighs> You know, I crossed the line third in that in that quarter final, and you know I remember looking at the at the draw list before that quarter final, and you know I kind of swallowed and got a lump in my throat because that quarter final was absolutely stacked. You know I had the toughest one on paper by far with with Mark Gagnon, who was four time world champion, and and Apollo Ono, the American, who was the favourite. And you got to finish first or second to get through to the next round. And you know in short track at that stage there was the big four, and those those two guys were two of them. So. To knock one of them off was going to be a tall order. For me, in that quarterfinal, I skated the house down. Uh, I made my move at the right time. I was on the front from six laps to go through till about one and a half. Maybe I spent a bit too much of my legs maintaining that speed on the front, but, you know, there was a, there was a few eyebrows starting to be raised after I'd been on the front for four laps. Was, could I hang on and win it? And, you know, I thought I might be able to do that for a second too, but, yeah, unfortunately, the legs got a bit tired and uh, Apollo and Gagnon got by me. And... Fortunately for me, Gagnon got disqualified for a movie made on the Japanese guy in the race, uh, Tamura Namoya, and uh, that elevated me through to the semi-finals. But no, I wasn't disappointed because I knew that that was the race where I'd put it all on the line and I'd 
I'd given everything that I could give and you know, I was able to put those demons to rest the previous three games and finally do my best at the Olympics. Yeah, so I mean, even if you had have gone out in that quarterfinal and Gagnon wasn't actually disqualified, you still would have held your head up high after those games knowing that you put that effort in that you were talking about before. Oh, totally. That was, you know, that was the true meaning of success for me right there in that quarterfinal. And, you know, if I had gone out in that quarterfinal and not through to the semis, I wouldn't be talking to you today. <laughs> but uh, I'd be as satisfied in my head and, uh, you know, and, and for me, in the in the big scheme of things, the gold medal was fantastic, and it was and it was the ultimate way to finish my career. But it wasn't the true meaning of success. Now, of course, in the semi-finals, you um, went through after there was a crash, of course, too, on the final lap. But there's one lap remaining in the final. Your fifth, your last. You're getting ready to congratulate the gold medalists. Are you thinking about a nice warm shower and just sort of thinking to yourself, "Oh, I made the final. That's a good reward for what I've just been achieving all my life." Yeah, I was. I was excited to be in the final. Uh, I was realistic that at 28 years of age and the oldest skater, not just in the final, the oldest skater in the entire short track field, that four races in two hours was probably going to be a bit too much for my legs because you go through heats, the quarters, the semis with about half an hour rest in between. So from the heat to the final is about two hours, maybe two and a half. And uh, I was you know, kind of realistic for that lactic acid thing I spoke of earlier. The recovery might not quite be there for that fourth race in two hours. And I was also pretty confident, and after speaking with my coach, that the other guys in the final, none of them were interested in picking up the silver or the bronze. The other four guys in that final, they all wanted to win. And that meant that there could be a good chance of an accident or some kind of mishap on the last lap. It didn't look like that was going to be the case. I'd, I'd gotten tired and dropped off about 15 metres, which for me was disappointing because I was a stronger skater than that. And, you know, to drop off in the final at the Olympics was, for me, not, not a big highlight. I like to watch the races where I actually skated my best. And, you know, in truth, that wasn't one of them. Chinese guy fell down into the last turn. And I thought, well, that moves me up to fourth. That's not really any better than fifth. And setting up my final turn, I saw the other three guys go down out of the corner of my eye. And I knew from then that I didn't need to skate anymore. I just had to get around that final corner and glide across the finish line and I was going to go across first. I didn't know if I should celebrate or hide in the corner. I just remember the images, though, just that look on your face. It was fantastic. And it just... it brought out something in Australia. You were talking about before how sort of every four years we pay attention to the Winter Olympics, but there was just something about that moment. It not only spoke volumes for Australian sport and an Olympic sport, but also just the true Australian spirit. I mean, you, you may have been 15 metres and last behind, like you were saying before, but you didn't give up. You could have just pulled off or, you know, deliberately crashed, but you kept going. You held on. You won the gold medal. And no matter what anybody says, Stephen, you are an Olympic gold medalist and they can never take that away from you. Moments like that, and you know, and there's there's countless ones of them in you know in Australian sport over the years. You might think of uh, think of Dean Lucan or somebody like that winning the uh, winning the gold medal at the '84 Olympics, Absolutely. or John Seaman or Duncan Armstrong. You know, those those moments just just stick in your mind. Or Kieran Perkins at Atlanta '96, and you know, for me, it's at the moment with all this Crawford Report stuff coming out saying that uh, you know that funding Olympic sports isn't value for money. It, it just makes me cringe on the inside that you know Australians could be deprived of those of those future moments because we're not prepared to to fund the lower profile Olympic sports as such. And you know I've had people tell me that that moment was the most Australian thing they've ever seen. And uh, you know for me, those kind of Olympic moments are right at the top in in the Australian psyche and and things that Australian people value. So it'd be very disappointing to see 
Olympic sports fall off the radar because they're not going to get funded anymore. I couldn't agree with you more about that, Sam. We're talking about that in the show today, actually. And considering that I don't think there's an event anywhere in the world that draws together the world as much as the Olympics and brings a country like Australia, whether you like sport or hate it, everybody still pays attention to the Olympics. And it, it does. It brings a nation together. And I couldn't agree with you more saying that those moments are just burnt into people's memories. And as I mentioned in the introduction before, of course, uh, you named one of Australia's 100 greatest Olympians as well because of that one moment. I mean, that must just be fantastic as well. Yeah, yeah, that's that's pretty cool. It's, uh, you know, it's always nice to be remembered for something you did, but, you know, for me, it's, it's continually rewarding to know that, you know, through something that I did, I'm able to provide inspiration to others. You know, even today, people, you know, people refer to that last man standing, never giving up, doing a Bradbury thing, and, you know, through, through the motivational speaking that that I've become fairly proficient at these days, talking in, uh, in corporate land or at schools or sportsman's nights or whatever, you know, I'm, I love the, the feeling that I'm able to, to give to other people to just, you know, maybe sit back and think, yeah, you know, if I try a bit harder at, at this goal of mine that I've got, whether it's in their business or their sport or, or whatever... It's, uh, the rewards are there if I'm, if I'm prepared to stick it out. Absolutely, Stephen, and you certainly are an inspiration to many. I, I give you that one. Now, um, just before we're getting towards the end of the interview here, but um, how do you think Australia will fare in uh, a couple of months' time when it comes to Vancouver next year? Oh, we, we have our strongest Winter Olympic team to date, no question. Uh, the team is packed to the rafters with, uh, with medal chances. The team will be probably 35 to 40 athletes, um, we have Tora Bright, who's the number one women's snowboard halfpipe rider in the world. Uh, Jackie Cooper and Lydia Lasilla, who are arguably the two biggest favourites in women's aerials. Dale Beek-Smith, our expat Canadian who won a gold medal for us in Torino. Absolutely, I remember that. Years ago, and he'll be one of the favourites for the men's moguls. And then there's a, there's a whole host of others in, in, in other sports. Tatiana Borodolina who is an expat Russian who now is skating for Australia, who will be one of the big contenders to win a, a medal in, in the women's 500 metres in short track speed skating. The list goes on. Jenny Owens in ski cross, Damon Haler in, in ski cross. Uh, yeah, the, the team is just really thick, and there's, uh, there's no numbers fillers in our 35 to 40 athletes. So. <laughs> Realistically, we could get four or five medals in Vancouver next Feb. And that would be fantastic, definitely, to come back from a Winter Olympics. And considering you were talking before about the um, the report about the Olympic funding, to come back from Vancouver, here's five medals. Shove this in your face, Australian government. This is what we need, you know. This is shove this up your blunt and smoke it. Give us more money. Yeah, damn straight. I like your uh, I like your adjectives there, Ben. <laughs> I try yeah, to calm it down a bit. <laughs> and in winter sports, with our our eight program winter sports that we have as part of the Olympic Winter Institute, they're all so limited numbers with the athletes that are amongst them that you know, they don't really require that much funding because there's, there's such a small group of athletes in them, but those athletes are in the top level in the world and they're 100% committed to, to bringing back medals from Vancouver. So, you know, in my mind, it's it's pretty good value for money, really, because there's not that many athletes to fund. Absolutely. And you were saying before there's only about 35 to 40 members. I and mean, compare that to our Summer Olympics team, which is a couple of hundred people. So, I mean, you look at your value for money and you bring, say, four or five medals out of a team of 40. I mean, that's what, like one in every eight people comes home with a medal? You don't get that for the Summer Olympics. No, definitely not. Now, look, Stephen, um, just before we wrap things up with our five questions we'd like to ask our guests, I should mention, too, that uh, down here with the brink, we're trying to bring the Olympics to Hobart. We're trying for the 2020. 
20 summer games. We have spoken about possibly trying to get a combined winter effort in there. Now, if we were to include short track... Don't you, and actually, don't you actually have to have summer to have the summer games? <laughs> well, that's true. This is the thing. We'd probably be more of a chance at the winter games, you know, because it's nice and cold even in summer. But if we were to hold short track speed skating and we could say, you know, organise the event so the competitors were to fall over in the last corner like they did in Salt Lake, could we coach you out of retirement to win a gold medal at a home Olympics? Yeah, well, maybe you could freeze over the Derwent uh, <laughs> or, or, you know, freeze over the Sydney to Hobart and I'll skate my way down there. <laughs> Have an outdoor speed skating, back like the classic Olympics. <laughs> None of this artificial yeah. ice stuff, you know. We, we have natural ice in Hobart. That would work a treat. Yeah, I'm not sure how your uh, Olympic aspirations are going to work out down there, but I wish you every success nonetheless. <laughs> oh, they're going very well, Stephen, I assure you that. Now, um, just as I said, we'll wrap things up with a set of questions we like to ask our guests. It'll only be whittled down to four questions due to the fact that one of our questions we can't ask because my co-host isn't with me. So if you're nice, ready and relaxed, these questions aren't that hard to answer. So I wish you all the best of luck with them, Stephen. First of all, what is your favourite type of cheese? Better, extra tasty. Extra tasty. Got to love the extra part in front of the tasty there. It makes it extra good. Are you a folder or a scruncher? Definite folder. Oh, Not again. Like scrunching thing at all. Yes, we're on that bandwagon here too on the show. <laughs> Folding people are intelligent people and they're Olympic gold medalists. We can use that as a slogan. That works well, Stephen. I like your thinking. Question number three. Are we alone in the universe? Ooh, doo-doo-doo-doo. Ah, yes. Yes! We have our first ever yes. Really, what's your thinking on that one, Stephen? May I ask you that? Uh, I, I don't, I don't buy into any of this um, extraterrestrial activity until they can show me some solid proof. <laughs> I like that groundwork and proof. You are our first ever guest to ever answer yes to that question. That's another first you can put on your resume. <laughs> Fantastic. And our final question we want to ask you here today, Stephen, is what event would you like to see at the Hobart 2020 Olympics? Can be anything. doesn't have to be a sport. It can be dodgeball or bullfrog riding, anything. Let your imagination run wild, Stephen. Ooh, geez, there's so many things going through my head right now. How about the sheep toss? The sheep toss. I like that. New Zealand would do well in that one. <laughs> they might take that a bit the wrong way, though, and think of it something else. <laughs> Thanks very much, Stephen. That about wraps it up for our interview with you today. Thank you very much for your time and wish you all the best of luck with your commentating for the Olympics in February and everything else in your life that goes your way. Thank you very much, Ben. And, uh, yeah, looking forward to the, the Winter Games. You can check that on, on Channel 9. It's, it's broadcasting that and starting on February 12th. Should be fun. <laughs> Such great memories, being able to listen to that again. And uh, we have reached out to Stephen again. We'd love to get him back on in, in a different capacity, of course, uh, given that it's actually been 15 years amazingly now since that win. So um, hopefully, maybe in the lead-up to Pyeongchang, we can get him on the, on the show again to give a bit more of a viewpoint of uh, Australia's chances in the, uh, the short track speed skating. So there you go. Uh, big pleasure, as always, to be able to bring this show to you. Like us on Facebook, subscribe to us on iTunes, rate us, feedback. You know the drill. And we're going to be continuing some of these classic interviews in the in the lead up, I guess, to Pyeongchang. Still a while away, but uh, we want to keep bringing you episodes. Just because we don't really have an Olympics to talk about right now, doesn't mean we still don't want to bring you episodes. So thank you for tuning in to Off the Podium, and we'll speak to you next time.